Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 8. Roof Away. Lying in bed, I light the candle. The orange flame wavering on its white shaft illuminates the hands of the alarm clock. 20 past four. I can give my pilots another 10 minutes sleep. The smell of the candle, the leaping black shadows of this room and the dark cavern of the dormitory stateroom beyond are now part of my life, for I have settled down to the tempo of battle here. I have even thought out my essential advice for our survival in air combat, based on my own experience and presuming that, to be shot down, a fighter pilot must make some mistake. It came to me yesterday when watching the midday raid. I turned to my pilots and said, You fighter pilots are lucky. The bomber boys over Germany have to face the uncertainties of anti-aircraft fire, but you need never be shot down. There are only two exceptions. You may get shot down if you're so heavily outnumbered that you run out of height and airspeed, or that if you're short of fuel and you're attacked while having to land. There's no other reason to get shot down at all, and if you are, it's your own damned fault. 
I'm very much aware of the mistake I made last time I crashed, and by the light of the fluttering candle I read about it and other recent entries in the diary I've been keeping. Peter crashed on the clifftops, not hurt. I crashed too, felt frightful about my broken Spitfire, had fuel left, should never have come into land. Old hands pretend to fight when out of ammo. After all, Huns don't know. We learn if we live. Went out for a walk in evening, wonderful smells from fields, walking back up the hill, watched Naxar buildings growing taller and taller, swallowing up the stars. Raids all night. Better trip. Surprised Chiefy by bringing back plane in one piece. Had Max up with me. He should make a good leader. We're diving back to Ireland too steeply too soon. Result, we come in at rooftop height under bombers instead of on top. Remedy this. I let Max take section up. We were heavily bombed, so were Takali and Halfa. Worried about Max and two initiates alone in Sky. Sheer joy to see his three planes come back. But he'd flown out to sea too far. By the time he dived back, it was all over. None of them saw a single enemy plane. Looking up from my diary, I realised that to make such an error must be all too easy. We've got to get amongst the enemy. Indeed, with the odds stacked so heavily against us, there's a real art in our air fighting. Everything must be timed perfectly. The climb up into the sun and the dive back into the bomber stream. But then, when one's in amongst the bombers, the breakaway is the most vital manoeuvre. The whole job's a rapier thrust to do the utmost damage, but no error. Once among the bombers, the enemy knows where we are. Every 109 is after us. Every pilot that has so far been shot down has been hit at this moment. I'll lead the formation today. The breakaway must be perfect. Now to wake my pilots. Holding the candle high, I climb out of bed. Most of the night bombing has moved over to the other side of the island. I can even hear the creaking of beds in the big dormitory. But here comes another lot. Bombs screeching low overhead burst somewhere outside the town. The dreaded Hughes huddle form groans from the side of the room. Oh, you're the noisiest getter-upper, he complains. Having made my way carefully amongst the black beds, I've found Max, who, sitting up, is staring at the candle flame with screwed-up eyes. Scotty's awake now, Cyril and Pancho too, but I must take four more. Whatever Spitfires are available must be manned with an excess of pilots. Belch and two sergeants. And how about my baby-faced South African? I must take him for his first trip today, but where is he? Baby-faced fair hair and closed eyelids are now illuminated below me. The candlelight is glistening on each of his parted lips. I'd love to leave him sleeping, but as I shake him ruthlessly, he opens his eyes, looks up at me and smiles. The bus, half filled with my silent swaying companions, rattles to a halt outside the tiny mess at Luca. Quickly we eat some breakfast. The cook tells us that the enemy only stopped bombing the aerodrome about ten minutes ago, so I congratulate him on getting our breakfast ready. Bangers for breakfast, a most appropriate choice. As we leave the building and walk up the road towards the dark smudge of G-shelter on the skyline, there's an imperceptible lightning of the sky. The muscles in my legs ache as I pick my way over the uneven ground, which is difficult to see. Stones and rocks loom up in unusual places. Dark shapes of airmen are hurrying to and fro in the pale light, and there are muttered warnings about delayed action bombs. As Chiefy greets me close to the shelter entrance, I notice that the dark profile of the stone building where our parachutes are kept is strangely uneven. With Chiefy's torch throwing a broken circle of white light over the rubble, we discover our parachutes buried in a tumble of rocks. I am filled with anxiety about the condition of such vital equipment. Our parachutes aren't opening properly. I'll get some new ones, but doubt if there are any. We've extracted the chutes. My pilots are carrying them off to G-Shelter, but one thing is certain. If the building is still to be used as a parachute store, it must have its roof replaced at once. I issue my instructions to Chiefy. He hesitates in protest, then, shooting into the gloom, orders two irks to search for the missing roof and two others to climb the wall to secure the rattling corrugated iron that remains. He stands watching progress. The bloody roof will be blown off again in the next raid, he mutters. 
Ignoring his comment, I ask how many Spitfires are serviceable. There are two. Come on, Babyface, let's get out to our planes. We're both down safely, and well done, Babyface. Although his formation was hopeless, nearly pranging me in turns, passing low over the top of my cockpit instead of underneath, he can shoot straight. Saw puffs streaming back over his wings and huge lumps flying off the black 88 in front of him. Wasn't much good myself, over-careful, watching for precise moment to break. Babyface followed me at once, downwards in direction of sun, best way. Can see if one's being followed, 109's lost us. But did I break too early? Not much good getting amongst bombers without destroying any. One shooting must be perfect. Three or four seconds should be enough. Perhaps I should have stayed. My chosen 88 was large and staring at me through my gun sights. Oh, I'm a fool. Forget it. Since landing, I've been drawing some airmen gathered round me at the dispersal. I've learned about Big Eats. Ginger's in trouble with his Maltese girlfriend. He won't marry the girl, and the results are bill for all the meals and entertainment he's had with her family. But now we're down in G-Shelter, and I've been talking with Woody on the phone. He won't let us fly on the next raid. He said there are only four fighters left serviceable on the whole island. He says he must hold them on the ground, and the reason, lest Kesselring sends in his airborne invasion, we've got to stand by. I suppose this means that if we're sent off, we attack gliders. In my apprehension, I've been asking the Winko how he'd operate against them. He just laughs. Someone's got to think ahead. Why do people always laugh? It's quite a question for Woody to hold our Spitfires on the ground, particularly after what happened to Hugh Pugh's bomber force that arrived here a few nights ago. There were ten Wellingtons, but they went straight off to attack the 109 bases in Sicily. It was a good idea, but the next day, although the Wellingtons were protected by special pens, six of them were hit in the bombing. They burned fiercely with monuments of smoke hanging above us in the sky. That didn't stop Hugh Pugh. The remaining four went out over Sicily again the next night. Two more were shot down. The last two were sent back to Egypt. Cruz said, nice and safe there. The aerodrome controller has just poked his head round the door. There's a 150-plus raid coming in, but we're not to go up. Prayers for our grounded Spitfires for its starting. The rock shudders, shrieks and growls. And we're all beginning to bounce. What a screeching din. It's like sitting inside an ear trumpet with giants bawling obscene language down either end. Pancho and Cyril, seated on the other side of the rocking cavern, are very calm. Max and Scotty have their mouths wide open to counteract blast effect. The Winko, sitting next to me, is splendidly still. Has a good expression, probably thinking the communal thought, next bomb hours? I'll do a drawing of him. Blast the bomb quiver. It makes my pen shake. It's over all too quickly. My loyalties have been divided in wanting the raid to stop for our own safety and for the sake of the Spitfires, and wanting it to go on so that, in my drawing, I could finish the Winko's hands. After filing up the steep rock steps, we emerge into the dazzle of brilliant sunshine. Just look at that, a huge bomb, black and ugly, squatting on the yellow ground. Waiting for us, says an irk. She must have come skipping across to Nesselia. Everyone is gathering round to look. The intrepid fellow is even writing something on it with a bit of chalk. The beastly thing gives me the pins and needles of apprehension. I am pleased to withdraw, with dignity, for I am picking my way over the rock fragments towards the dispersal point. I want to find out if the Spitfires have survived. Chiefy, on his way back from the dispersal, tells me they are undamaged, for Safi's trip has taken most of the punishment. He nods his head towards the centre of the aerodrome, where I can see, all too clearly, a large curled-up shape of corrugated iron, conspicuously alone on the grass. I glance quickly at the parachute hut. It is once again roofless. It is Monday, April the 27th. This morning, after I got out of bed, I went and stood on the small balcony outside my bedroom window. It was hot to my bare feet, and I could feel the heat of the sun through my pyjamas. 
The church opposite was in deep shadow, casting a shadow towards me down the forty-odd steps and diagonally across the dusty roadway below. Only the two flanking towers of the church, either side of its central façade, tapering upwards, had their crisp edges of baroque stone gleaming with orange detail against the blue. The central façade itself has a colonnade of tall pillars dwarfing the entrance door and rising steadily to support an architrave impediment, while above the apex of the pediment there is a plinth upon which stands a sculptured figure holding a cross. This cross leaned out towards me and looked down upon me, a silent morning blessing, accompanied by the bark of Bofors guns and the whine of engines. I felt terribly sad. I felt cut off from its blessing. The RAF describes me as Church of England, while the church opposite, like all the other churches here, was Roman Catholic. I tried to remember that the golden cross above me was a symbol of love far beyond the different interpretations of men, and at last I found myself smiling back at it. Further along the flat wall of our palace to my left, a figure wrapped in a blanket emerged from the window of the large stateroom and shuffled out into the sunlight onto a similar balcony to mine. Pancho was taking the morning air. Pancho, who was working on a ranch in the Argentine before the war, stood on his balcony like an S-bend, somewhat round-shouldered, with his oval face thrust well forward with his usual ghost of a grin on it. The blanket hung from his shoulders in deep folds with diagonal stripes of brown and yellow. He only needed a sombrero to complete the picture of his pampas days. He stared at the church, while on the church itself, in niches, carved stone saints, wrapped in togas, stared back at Pancho. Is breakfast ready? I murmured. No cooks, no waiters, he replied, nodding sleepily towards the entrance of the air raid shelter, a few yards down the road. As we lingered in the sun, we saw a priest emerge from the doorway of the church, a short, plump figure, enclosed in a black robe, wearing a wide-brimmed black hat, looking tiny beneath the lifted facade of elaborate architecture. Raising his robe with one hand and holding it close about him with the other, he started to descend the wide flight of steps. He descended majestically as befitting a priest. There was a sound of heavy engines rising into a crescendo as the German bombers, hidden from sight behind our palace roof, plunged towards us. The priest leaped the last four steps in one bound, disappearing down the shelter steps in a flurry of skirts. Simultaneously, other Maltese were coming up the steps, streaming out onto the roadside to watch, for a lone Spitfire was attacking. Don't shoot them down on top of the palace, you fool. We haven't had breakfast yet, called Pancho. My balcony was shuddering with each crash of anti-aircraft fire, but leaning out as far as I dared... I stepped up towards the palace parapet behind which the action was hidden, a wingtip, an engine. Then the whole formation of about 30 88s swept into view. I saw the elliptical flash of the Spitfire and heard the stutter of machine guns, but incongruously I was intrigued by the Maltese crowds below. Gesticulating with excitement, they surged and swayed, all except one huge fellow who stood like a breakwater with his arms folded, only his head turned, following the released bomb load over the rooftops. After the explosions rumbled up from somewhere in the valley beyond, I turned back into the gilded stateroom. Max and Scotty were already thumping and thundering on a balustered-legged table. Waiter! 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 A young Maltese, with a sallow complexion bent double as if in fear of us, came rushing into the room. Breakfast was disgusting. A sooted length of pale bacon flopped lifelessly over a partially fried piece of bread, both coldly congealed to the plate and a mug of tea. Knowing that we were on a semi-starvation diet because of the siege, and knowing also that oil from crashed aircraft, which we have to use for cooking, was responsible for the beastly taste of the bread and bacon, I had to accept it, but to my mind there was no excuse for the tea. If the CO was still with us, he'd have done something about it, so I stormed out onto the landing towards the kitchen. At the top of the stairs, the mixed smell of oil, cooking fat and dishcloths was more virulent than ever, stinging my nostrils. I started to descend, but I found myself disturbing horizontal layers of blue smoke, and what a splendid effect the smoke made. 
silver shafts of light streaming obliquely through the arched windows splashed beautiful patterns of gold on the whole flight of steps below me. As I paused to look, I became aware that just outside the windows, red and orange flowers were nodding their delicate heads amongst the green leaves. I also noticed that the palace garden was being observed by a man standing at the bottom of the illuminated gloom, looking out through the last window of all. As I slowly descended, I watched his hand resting lightly on the stonework of the window recess, with the loose sleeve of his white shirt hanging motionless below his sunburnt wrist. His face remained in profile, puckered by tiny shadows, while the sunlight glistened on his curly black hair. A dishcloth was hanging from the pocket of his greasy black trousers. He was the cook. My anger had somehow dissolved. I was only aware that as a symbol of authority descending in judgment, I was most inadequately dressed in pyjamas. You were the cook, I asked as firmly as I could. I must have surprised him, for he started back. Yes, sir, he replied. Well, tell me how you made the tea. In the usual way, sir. I liked the man, but I had to get to grips with the situation. Luckily, from my silence, he seemed to realise that a more detailed account was needed. Well, sir, he continued, water is short. The tap only runs for an hour each day, and today's water hasn't come through yet. We are good, sir. We save water just so we can make tea for you. We kept the water that we boiled yesterday's beetroot in and used that. What could I do but advise very gently, and, suppressing a smile, climb back up the stairs? The Maltese are enduring the battle with wonderful patience. We may be aware of bad food, or more particularly that the brewery, which has run out of fuel, has stopped making beer. But the Maltese, who live on a diet of bread dipped in olive oil, yesterday had their meagre rations cut by half. The grain stocks are almost exhausted, while the olive oil, normally imported from Italy, is practically run out. I wish I'd had a longer chat with the cook this morning, but I've been out on an exploratory walk. Indeed, I'm on my way back to Naxar. I'm resting on a stone wall with a tarmac in front of me, grey with dust because traffic no longer runs on the island. The road is potholed because no one bothers about repairs anymore and it runs through a typical saffron yellow landscape under a blue sky. There's no one in sight, not a single one of the 270,000 Maltese who live here. It's strange to realise that the island is only 15 miles long and 8 miles wide, smaller in fact than the area of Greater London, and, I am told, one of the most densely populated areas in Europe. I passed a row of small flat-footed stone houses on my way here. Some windows were boarded up, others sealed by heavy shutters, but even where the shutters were fully back against the wall, revealing lace curtains in the windows, the blackness of the room stared back at me. I saw no sign of their occupants. I looked at the dust being blown by the wind past the doors, yet I felt the people were watching me. Does my Air Force uniform frighten the Maltese peasants? I am not a Nazi to kick in their doors, but do they fear some frightful retribution from the skies if they come too near me? I am reminded of a raid the other day when two 109s came racing along our Naxar Hill so low that I took out my revolver to have a shot at them. I suddenly felt the presence of a Maltese labourer and looking round saw him standing watching me from the next field. He stared at my revolver for a long dreadful moment, then turned and ran. After passing the houses a few minutes ago, I came on alone up the road towards a line of trees and I noticed a Maltese horse-drawn cab called a Carozzi or Gary standing in their shadows. Now a Gary must once have been a gay vehicle, its four-spoked wheels support by a most humorous system of half-moon springs, a compartment where passengers can sit facing each other on two red leather seats. From each corner of the compartment a polished wooden pole rises up to support a shallow domed roof from which bright enclosing curtains hang down. The Gary stood alone in the empty landscape. Its roof was fringed with a dusty crimson material, like an old jester's cap. Its curtains were faded yellow, almost grey. As I came up behind it, I could just see the driver's legs protruding from behind the front curtain. 
Watching his black trousers stretch tightly over his bent knees as I drew nearer, I felt thrilled that in all this empty landscape I was going to meet another human being. Coming alongside, I looked up at the driver and smiled. He stared at me. I said good morning, but he just stared, and I felt him staring as I came on down the road. Perhaps he resented my long, searching look at his horse, a shrunken creature standing motionless between the shafts, its bony head hanging heavily on its thin neck, lost in its harness, a typical example of our emergency food supply. Perhaps he thought that, sketchbook in hand, I was making an official inventory and that he'd soon be losing his friend the horse and his livelihood as a cab driver. Although the Maltese and ourselves share this battle together, the events of this moment of history are so much larger than any of us individuals. As an individual sitting on this wall with the wind moaning over the rocks, I'm imagining that when the air raid warning sounds, the blue sky may be blackened by the heavy shapes of descending gliders, and knowing full well that there's no one in these open sunlit fields to oppose such an attack, it seems inevitable that I'd be taken prisoner. I feel horribly alone. I feel conspicuously neglected by my wife. Why hasn't she written me a letter? There was nothing for me yesterday when a lot more letters arrived for other pilots. But surely she must have written. Perhaps the complete mail hasn't yet been sorted. Perhaps there's a letter waiting for me at Luca. Perhaps it will be brought back to Naxar when B-Flight returns from readiness. This glorious hope, which is probably true, makes me leap from the wall and stride forward along the road. The tarmac has now ended. A dusty track wiggles ahead. I can already see Naxar in the distance. I am walking along in the valley below the escarpment, below my favourite position near the grain tower. The fields on my right rise in small terraces onto the side of the hill before it becomes too steep to hold them. In the field that I am passing, a most unusual crop is being cut and gathered into bundles by three labourers bending low with their sickles. The foliage, growing vertically like wheat, is deep spinach green topped by gay crimson flowers that bob about in the wind. Flowers in our palace? Why not? Leaning over the wall and lifting a newly cut bundle, rather sticky to touch, I gesture to the nearest labourer, an old wrinkled sunburnt fellow wearing a wide-brimmed straw hat, to ask if I may have some. He waves a greeting and seems to indicate that I take more, but one bundle is enough. I jump from the slight bank down onto the road again, while the labourer, with a happy smile, bends back to the regular rhythm of his work. The dusty track, glaring with sunlight, is now climbing the hill towards the town. Quite out of breath, with the sticky flowers beginning to wilt in my clammy right hand, I pass the first of the flat-roofed houses. They rise from the street, their wrought iron balconies hanging above me. There are several fat women in black dresses sitting outside their houses sewing lace, their pump bare legs stretched out into the roadway like hurdles for walkers such as me, and behind them are strong wooden doorways. I am intrigued by the doors, for there is a religious text or picture pinned on each of them. Many show saints, but undoubtedly the Madonna and child is their favourite subject. There is a continuous babble of voices in the street. Peasants in dishevelled western suits are passing up and down, children darting to and fro amongst them, while from among the plump girls with intensely black hair, I find myself awaiting with secret pleasure glimpses of the slender graceful ones with young breasts, firm beneath their colourful cotton dresses, large eyes and slightly parted lips. These brunette Botticellis have bare feet, and as they walk, their heels twist up little spurts of dust. It's a gay, happy throng of people that surges me into the main street. I hardly notice the damp things, thick with flies in the dust at the side of the town, the odour of human sweat and the fiercely individual smell of the town. Now, the magnificent twin towers of the church are soaring above the bobbing heads, so I make my way over to the left. I must go straight into our palace if the flowers are to survive. I pause in the palace entrance to watch four priests muttering together at the bottom of the church steps, for, as the crowd moves by, everyone falls silent. The men lean forward and touch their caps to the priests, while the women... 
A sudden mechanical scream for the air raid siren. Some people run forward, others turn round and run back. Still more race for the narrow entrance to the shelter. Mothers snatch up their children and yell fiercely at older boys who are still playing games. The hubbub has sorted itself out. The priests have vanished. The streets are almost empty. Just a few regulars standing at the shelter entrance staring up into the blue. The flowers will have to wait because I'm on my way down the alley beside the church, out towards the hillside wall to watch the raid. Here beside the wall, there's only one pilot with me. It is Cyril, quiet and mature, thin and angular, with his long face shadowed under the curved peak of his South African army officer's hat. The raid's almost over. In his usual manner, Cyril has been leaning against the wall, arms folded, his left ankle crossed over his right instep. He nodded towards the first wave of Stukas that came in from the north and gave a slight tilt of his head towards the second wave, also 87s, that approached from behind the two towers of the church. We have watched three waves of enemy bombers converge on the island targets. Luca and Valletta have both been bombed, while near at hand Takali's billiard table has been ripped from end to end by bomb clouds. With the concussion of the explosions pressing and pulling at our eardrums, we have watched a lorry race across the aerodrome, swerving in and out of tall pillars of smoke that sprung up fiercely and energetically black. I think it got away with it. Two 87s have been shot down, burning. They passed over our heads to crash a mile or two behind us. It is silent now and the sunshine is very warm. Cyril taps me on the shoulder. There's a parachute coming down, he remarks quietly. Where? I shout, swinging round. Cyril gestures into the sky above Luca. I can't see it, only the red blanket of drifting dust from where the bombs fell on Valletta. Above the dust, the sky is green crystal, growing blue and still blue as I look steeply upwards. Yes, there's the chute, looking pink against the deepest blue of all, descending steadily, descending rather fast, perhaps. Will it pass behind the dust? It's already there in white silhouette, dropping much too fast. Something's wrong with it. It's only half open, the rest flapping loosely. And the man is not struggling, but just looking down past his feet at the ground, rushing up to meet him. The parachute appears for an instant in front of a square house in the valley, then disappears. The men that we can see moving about down there will ring the hospital. Not that the pilot, who may well be one of B-Flight, could have survived a fall like that. Was his parachute collapsed by the enemy? I hear that it's a habit of the 109s to pull up steeply over descending chute so that the downdraft from their propellers collapses the open silk, entangling the shroud lines, and causes the pilot to fall headlong. I am aware that I am witnessing a total war. Although I could never bring myself to kill such a defenceless man, the inevitable justice of total war is borne in upon me. If we fall by parachute onto our own soil, we can go up and fight again. Thus we are legitimate military targets. Sorrowfully, Cyril and I turn back towards Naxar. At the palace, I ring through to Luca and talk to the dreaded Hugh. I learn that Pip, who I took to on the hillside the other day when he was so frightened, is missing on his first flight. I put through a call to the hospital. It was Pip in the parachute, but he's still alive. One foot has been shot away and his other foot broken on landing, but he's still alive. Cyril and I wait for the return of the other B-flight pilots in the mail. My flowers have not revived in water. They were exposed too long and I've had to throw them away. B-Flight finally returned with the news that Pip has died from spinal concussion and shock. They bring the last of the mail. No letter from Diana. But a large packet has come for Pip and will have to be sent back. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US. But for that, you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. 
you can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.